0: Charles Prebish is a professor of religious studies and the author of numerous books, including American Buddhism. This is Charles Prebish. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. Uh, I'm here with Chuck Pribish. Uh Thank you very much for joining me today. Okay. Um, so I wanted to get a sense from you of um, how... Buddhism came to be in America and through the lens of your personal journey with it, because you've played um, you know, a big role in that story. And I, I would also like to maybe ask your, your scholarly opinion on uh, some questions about Buddhism itself. Um, you're a religious scholar, a practicing Buddhist. But interestingly enough, you started off as a pre-dental student, which... Right friends with, um, uh, uh, someone who's going to dental school and, uh, he has made it known to me, uh, something I was not aware of that apparently dentists have the highest suicide rate among all doctors.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. It seems like you've, you've transformed quite a bit. Um, so w- what was the sort of the first step on this journey
1: for me? Okay. Uh, maybe a, a little bit too much to say, but, um, in, in 1999, one of my Penn State colleagues at the time wrote a, a funny book called The Accidental Buddhist, and his, his name was Dinti Moore, which is a funny name for a scholar. Um, but when he called himself The Accidental Buddhist, he, he claimed that he found his way into Buddhism in, in just an odd way, and most people that read the book thought it was silly and funny. But for me when I read the book, it was absolutely an accurate description of how I found my way into Buddhism, because at at no time prior to my senior year in college did I ever imagine that I would be involved with Buddhism. I I clearly didn't even know what Buddhism was in in those times. Um, In 1965, I was starting my senior year in college and I had already finished my chemistry major. I had applied to dental school. I was all set to take the, the dent boards Um, which accompanies your application. And I happened to be sitting on the front steps of my fraternity house with some of my fraternity brothers. And we were looking for courses to take. And one of them noticed a course on Buddhism and said, why don't we all take this? And as I said, at the time, I had no idea what it was, but we all said fine. And we signed up and took the course. And on on the first day of the class, the professor walked in and he started to share with the class what is the primary doctrine of Buddhism. It's called the Four Noble Truths, which I'm sure you know. And the First Noble Truth says that all life is suffering or Dukkha. And as soon as he said that, my friends all started to laugh because they all came from wealthy New York families, Jewish families, and they couldn't imagine what suffering was like. But I did, despite coming from a well-to-do Jewish family in Chicago, um, I would say that that probably at least the last five years of my life up into that point, maybe longer, had been filled with suffering because my father died at age 48 in December of 1961 when I was a senior in high school. After a five-year struggle with brain cancer, he had glioblastoma. And by the time of his death, the only thing he could move was his right hand. So when I went away to college, I, I was just sad and unhappy and clearly didn't see myself as Jewish anymore. Uh, When the professor started to talk about all life being suffering, it was almost as if the light bulb inside my head lit up and all of a sudden I knew that this was for me. So I asked a lot of questions. I met with the professor every chance I could get. I went to all the libraries in Cleveland where I went to college at what was then called Western Reserve University, scooping up all the books on Buddhism that I could find. Later in that fall semester, I went down to a small Theravada Buddhist community outside of Washington, DC that existed mostly for the um, political people in DC. And I, I did what's called taking refuge. I became a Buddhist. I put my faith in the Buddha. I put my faith in the Dharma, his teaching. And I put my faith in the Sangha, his community of followers. And I agreed that I would follow as best I could the five vows of the laity. Not to lie, not to kill, not to steal, not to take intoxicants, and not to have illicit sex. And so, some of those five precepts have changed a little in the 60 years since then. But but that's what I did. And the person who was a teacher in that school taught me how to do Buddhist meditation. And he said that I should go back to Cleveland where I went to school and to start doing the meditation. And I asked him how long. And he said that I should do it for four hours a day. Wow. Well, yeah, it, that's what I said too. I said, four hours a day is crazy. I said, I'm, I'm a normal college student. I'm, I'm kind of an ex-jock. I do sports. I have a girlfriend. I'm in a fraternity. How am I going to do four hours a day? And he said, bye-bye. And I said, what do you mean? He said, if you can't do four hours a day, then don't bother with me anymore. So I went back to Cleveland and I did it. And I would say for the next 10 years, I did four hours of sitting meditation every day. Uh, I, I found very early on that I, I hated dental school. It was just ho- horrendous. And I was quite sure that if, if I followed through and stayed in dental school, that probably I would be a terrible dentist and I would wind up killing somebody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or
0: seriously <laughs> mangling their mouth, yeah.
1: yeah ab- ab- absolutely. And I, and I was afraid that I would become one of those dentists that killed himself. Right. So I I had difficulty figuring out how to deal with that because my family expected me to do this. There was an old joke in Chicago Jewish communities that they expected their, their children to be doctors and lawyers. And my older brother was a lawyer. So for, for me, the choice was was clear. And when I realized that I just couldn't stay in dental school, that I hated it, about halfway through the first semester, um, I called my mother and I told her that I was going to drop out of dental school. And she told me that if I dropped out of dental school, she would cut me out of her will. And at that point, I told my mother to be fertile and reproduce herself. (laughs) Not quite in those terms. And she she hung up on me, Uh, rightly so. Uh, Called me back a few minutes later and said, okay, I realize this is your life. And if that's what you want to do, do it. Well, it was trickier than that, because in 1966, the United States was intimately involved in the Vietnam War. And if I had dropped out of school altogether, I probably would have been drafted immediately. So I contacted the professor who taught me my first course on Buddhism and wonderful man that he was. He managed to get me enrolled in the master's program in religion at what was then the newly named Case Western Reserve University and I managed to complete my master's degree in one semester in a summer. But during that time, I looked for a place where in the United States, I could do graduate work in Buddhism. And at that time, there was only one university in the United States that offered a PhD in Buddhist studies. And that was the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So I applied and much to my surprise, I got accepted pretty quickly. And I started graduate school in the fall of 1967 at the University of Madison under the guidance of the professor who ran the program. His name was Richard H. Robinson. He was the foremost scholar of Buddhism in the United States, a Canadian by birth. And that became a factor later on. Uh, But I went to Madison and started the program and found that we had about 25 other graduate students all working on their PhD in Buddhist studies. And they came from crazy backgrounds, just like mine. One, one had a degree in chemistry, one was a librarian, it was all over the place. So we were a very tightly knit group of people. And some of them were also Buddhist practitioners, not all, but, but some. So we went through the program and the odd part for me was that other than finding a professional home, uh, the program director, Richard Robinson, for whatever his reasons, somehow seemed to take me under his wing. And I, I didn't quite understand that because I think that quite a number of the people in the program were smarter than I was, or at least I thought that. But for whatever the reasons, he took me under his wing and made it his task to make me the very best scholar that he could make me. And it wasn't just me that he treated that way. He, he treated my whole family that way. Uh, I got married in August of 19... Of 19- 68, and he, he treated my wife much in the same way that he, he treated me. It was just, it was wonderful. It was like we became part of his family. And as a result, he picked me to become his research assistant for two years, which I did uh, between 1968 and 1970. Then something rather odd happened. My wife and I had our first son and Professor Robinson wanted to meet him. So he had my wife bring my young son to, to his office We had some conversation and he he told my wife that it was time for me to take my comprehensive examination. And that day after our meeting, he went home and got blown up in a house fire. Apparently the hot water heater in his basement uh, had leaked gas and when he went down to restart the pilot, the whole house blew up. And he had second and third degree burns on 75% of his body. And uh, a couple of months later, he died. So he never got to see me finish my Buddhist studies program. Uh, But it it was odd that at least my my younger son got to meet him and my wife got to spend some time with him on the, it turns out the day that he became injured. Well, I I got my degree in, in June of 1971. And by that time I was applying for jobs and the first place I applied for a job was at Penn State University. What I didn't know at the time was that there was a, a faculty member there who taught Buddhism, who was retiring. His name was Garma Chen Chang, and he was a Chinese immigrant who had come to the United States. In fact, he actually had spent one year teaching at Wisconsin. And when I came for the interview at Penn State, he was the person that basically was gonna make the decision as to whether I would be hired or not. And much to my benefit, I got hired. So I came to Penn State in, in the fall of 1971. And it was interesting because at that time, the, the work in religion was done in a, a department of religious studies. I think I was about the 15th member of the department. So it was a big department. And they offered a BA and MA and a PhD and their PhD program focused on religion in America. And at that time, if anybody had ever said to me that there were Buddhists in America, I wouldn't have known because I, I, I didn't think there, there were any. Um, along the way, uh, very early on in my career, uh, one of my students came up to me and this became a, a pretty common question. The, the student said to me, do you meditate? And of course my answer was yes. And then he said, are you a Buddhist? And my answer was no because I was afraid that if I confessed to being a Buddhist, that I would be treated in, in an uncomplimentary fashion by my new department. And in fact, that, that really is what turned out to be the case because when I finally outed as a Buddhist, my department had at the time looked at me and smiled and he said, what do we call you now, Buddhist? And he laughed, uh, mm. but he said, he said now, that, now that we know that you're Buddhist, he said, it's very unlikely that you ever have a chance of getting tenure and promoted here.
0: Wow. And, and that's, that's in spite of the fact that, you know, you had say Christian scholars who were practicing Christians, etc.
1: Yeah. And as it turned out, the department head was a, a minister in a church um, that belonged to the, the sectarian group, the, the church of the brethren. So it was okay for him to do that and others to do that, but it wasn't okay for me, a Buddhist. And he said, we're afraid that you will go to class and have a, a guru mentality. And I, I must confess when he said that, I didn't know what a guru mentality would have even been. Yeah. Uh, so I, I stuck it out. And it wasn't long after that, the students started asking me if I would teach them meditation. And I said, no, I wouldn't do that because in a university that was designed to be a public university, it would have been inappropriate for me to do that. So I, I didn't do that. But eventually, another student came up to me, and he asked me what was an interesting question that ultimately changed my life. He said, what do you think of Philip Caplow? Does does that name ring a bell with you at all?
0: Uh, yes. Well, okay. just, just because I heard him through you. Oh, and um, one, one sec, sorry, I should have brought this up at the beginning. Um, is, there, is there like a, a fan on or something like that in the background?
1: Uh, not in not in my study. It might be my computer, um, but I don't hear. It. Usually, when the fan comes on, I hear it, and it hasn't really popped on yet. Well, oh, oh,
0: okay, if there's if there's nothing, um, I, I just hear like a slight sort of buzzing, but otherwise, uh, I can. Well, get, get,
1: get ready. It. Later on, it'll get worse. Okay, Usually great. after the after the computer's been on like twenty or thirty minutes, it does it does get, great greater. Right, right now it's very very tiny. Fair enough. Um, anyway, Philip Capo, as as you know, was. Uh, had been a court reporter who covered uh, some of the war trials after the Second World War in Japan, and eventually went back and became a Buddhist monk um, and and studied Zen um, and became a Zen master or a Roshi. And he came back to the United States and started a Zen center in Rochester, New York. Uh, So when my student asked me, what did I think of Philip Kaplow? All I could think about was that the student wanted me to talk about Kaplow's primary book, which was called The Three Pillars of Zen. Um, the Three Pillars of Zen was a book that people used to carry they would carry around in their back pocket, much in the same way they used to carry around Jack Kerouac's dharma bombs mm. um, in their pocket. So I started talking about the book and he, he, the student cut me off almost immediately. And he said, Professor Priebusch, I don't mean to be disrespectful. He said, but I'm a big boy. I read the book. I know what I think of the book. He said, what do you think of Philip Kaplow Roshi? And all of a sudden I realized that I really didn't think anything of Philip Kaplow Roshi. He was for me only a, a kind of a, a faceless voice to a good book. And I thought, uh oh, if, if this is the kind of question I'm gonna be asked, I ought to find out something about what Kaplow is doing and what's happening in America. And in those days, there was no real easy way to do that because there, there was no internet. There, there wasn't much that you could see on TV. I didn't know where to start. Well, it turns out by then, we had a different department head in religious studies and the department head was a person named Yoshio Fukuyama, who was a Japanese American. He was also a Christian, but he was a Japanese American. So I asked Yoshio if he knew anyone I could contact to find out about Buddhists in America. And he gave me a phone number of Buddhist Churches of America, which was a large parent group in San Francisco that housed dozens and dozens of Buddhist temples around the country that all belonged to the pure land tradition of Japanese Buddhism. So I called them and connected with them in a very positive way. And they agreed to to direct me to places that I could go and find out more, and that they would send me any information they got. And I started writing letters and making phone calls to Buddhist communities all around the United States. And whenever they would send me things, I would take the things they sent me and I would throw them in a big file cabinet with the notion that maybe one day I could write a book about this. Because at that point, there were clearly no books about Buddhism in America. And this went on for a couple of years. And it turns out that in, in the spring of 1974, I got a very strange invitation from a Buddhist teacher, an expatriate, ex lama from Tibet, named Chogyam Trungpa. Is that a name familiar to you? Uh,
0: yes, but only through you.
1: Okay. Um, Chogyam Trungpa uh, was what they call a rinpoche. He was an incarnate Buddhist lama, and he fled Tibet when the Chinese took over. Went to India, and eventually found his way to the United States. First through England, and then to the United States. And he started a Buddhist center uh, in Barnett, Vermont called Tale of the Tiger. And he got the idea that he was going to start uh, a non-sectarian Buddhist university in Boulder, Colorado. And he started a place called Naropa Institute that he was going to have its first year, its first summer in 1974. And he began inviting people that had involvement with Buddhism in a variety of ways to come to Boulder and to teach at this institute. And I thought this would be a great opportunity for me. He invited me to come and teach Sanskrit. I thought this would be a great opportunity to go and meet other Buddhists from around the country. And they provided my, my family with a free house to live in, let my wife take any courses she wanted for free. My kids got to go to their daycare school for free. So it was wonderful. And I got to hobnob with people that I had only heard about before, like Alan Ginsberg. And well, Gary Gary Snyder, um, and and people like that. Can, uh, can I ask? And, and I,
0: go well, ahead. Sure. when we say hobnob with those people, like well, Alan Ginsberg, he he seems like a fascinating character. What was he like?
1: Uh, he was very intelligent, very uh, open, um, gay, which I think everybody knew, um, and in his own way, kind of wacky. Um, The only thing I can tell you that safely says that is that the last party I can remember being at with him, um, he decided that it was a little warm outside, so he took off all his clothes, Hmm. and and he wandered around the party for two or three hours in his underwear. And nobody thought that that was particularly odd for Allen Ginsberg to to do that. Um, It it was very pleasing to another beat poet named Gregory Corso, who most people didn't know, who had an incredible crush on Ginsburg and just followed him along like a puppy for hours. And Allen Ginsburg wasn't interested because at that time he had a, he had a partner. Uh, but they were, they were very interesting characters in their own way. And early on in that summer, they had a, a meeting for all the faculty people at a fraternity house on Boulder's campus. And at one point, one of Trunk with close disciples grabbed me by the shoulder and said, come on, Mr. Prebish, it's time for you to, to go, come over and, and meet Rinpoche, Trumpa." And I said, okay. So he took me over to Trungpa, who I had never seen before. And there was Trumpa in a business suit uh, smoking a Marlboro and with a glass of whiskey in his hand, which is not the way I actually expected to find him. Uh, he put out his hand to shake hands with me. And when we shook hands, how it happened, I don't know, but when we shook hands, I just started running off at the mouth with the most incredible nonsense that you could imagine. Oh, Rinpoche, I'm so excited to see you. I've read all your books. It's so great to be at Naropa, this is terrific. I can't wait to be here. It's wonderful, blah, 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 And I went for five minutes straight without stopping. And after five minutes, Trungpa put out his hand and shook hands with me again and said, perhaps next time we should talk. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know what to say. My wife grabbed me by the arm and said, let's get the, you know what, out of here because you just made an ass of yourself. Um, so we went home to the house they had rented for us. And for the next nine hours, I walked around the dining room table. I have no idea why I did that. But during the nine hours, I walked around the table. All my hang-ups, all my worries, all my concerns, all the things I meditated about, they all just kept pouring out. And the only thing that stopped me was after nine hours, the phone rang. And it was Trump's personal handyman, disciple, called to say that Trump wanted to have a brief five-minute meeting with me the next day, which was a Monday. Uh, he was giving every faculty person a five-minute meeting. Now, the five minutes for me was about four minutes too much, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I couldn't say no. So the meeting was scheduled at 4 o'clock, and I got there at 4 o'clock. And I sat in the waiting room outside his office for two hours waiting for him to call me in. No one came in or out during those two hours. I don't know what he was doing in there. But after two hours, I went in. And when we when we started to talk, he said, I need to tell you something about your practice. And I thought that was very odd because the only thing Trungpa knew about me at that point was from my curriculum vitae. So he knew about my professional career, but he certainly didn't know anything i thought about my practice and he said i know that you've been doing sitting meditation for four hours a day for 10 years i have no idea how he could have known that almost nobody knew that except my family and he said i have to tell you something he said i think you should stop sitting and i Mm -hmm. thought that was that was pretty odd because later that night he was going on to teach 600 students how to meditate so he was gonna teach 600 students who were at Naropa Institute how to meditate, but he was telling me to stop. And I asked him why, and he said, I know that by now you're very adept at returning inside your head and closing off the world from your thinking. He said, that's not what meditation is for. He said, I think you need to take what you've learned during all those years of meditating and take them out of your head and take them into the world, and begin to share your practice and what you understand about Buddhism with people. He said, and along the way, you'll probably get depressed at some points, and maybe you'll even feel like you're losing faith. He said, but when you have those moments of losing faith, that's when you should go back and sit on your cushion. And for me at that point, and to this day, that was the single best piece of advice I've ever had a buddhist teacher because it meant that everything i learned about buddhism that i managed to put into my practice i tried to share with people by dealing with my conduct and theirs in a professional way and sometimes that got me into odd and uncomfortable situations Uh, if you've looked at some of the information about my my career i retired from penn state in 2006 and at the time i retired uh, i got an invitation to go to Utah State University, very strange place, uh, and hold an endowed chair and direct their new religious studies program, which was the first program of its kind in the Intermountain West. When I got there, I discovered that there was a small little community in the town where the university was. It was in, it called itself the Cache Valley Sangha, C-A-C-H-E, Cache Valley. And the people there decided to have a a little dinner to welcome me to the place And they invited my wife and I to dinner. So we had wonderful dinner. And after dinner, they said, why don't you tell us about your practice? So I told them how I was trained in Theravada meditation with Shamatha and Vipassana. And I told them about all my hours of meditation and the retreats I had taken and so forth. And I said, but the best advice I'd ever had was from Chagyam Trungpa. And this is how I now do my practice. And they all looked like they were shocked and disappointed. And within a couple of days, I started hearing little rumors around campus that Prebish isn't really a Buddhist because he doesn't sit every day.
0: Mm. <laughs>
1: and I thought that was kind of silly, but you know, I dealt with it in my own way and, and that was okay. And then after, after four years there of being in a very, very odd culture, which we don't need to talk about, my wife and I decided to move back to civilization and we, we came back to the Penn State campus to retire. Uh, but, but the fallout of Naropa was interesting in another way because while I was there, I met another young person, a journalist, whose name was Rick Fields. And Rick was working on a book on Buddhism in America. And I told him that I had brought this whole file cabinet of stuff with me because I also wanted to write a book on Buddhism in America. Because at that point, there was only one book in print that actually had the title Buddhism in America in it. It was a book by a woman named Emma Layman, Emma McCloy Layman, who was a retired psychology professor from Iowa. And it was an okay book, it had, had a fair amount of stuff in it, but it wasn't anything that Rick wanted to do and it wasn't anything I wanted to do. So it sort of became like a little contest between Rick and I, who was gonna get their book out first. And I got mine out first in 1979, his came out in 1981. But I think if I'm really honest, his, his was better than mine because he was by nature a journalist and he didn't write Buddhist hybrid English. He wrote language that people could understand. Uh, What I did in mine was try to understand how Buddhism had developed in the United States. And I would say that up until the, the early 1960s, almost all you could find in the United States in Buddhist communities was Japanese American communities or Chinese American communities and the practice they did in those communities was pure land Buddhism, putting their faith in Amitabha uh, celestial Buddha. Uh, Things changed in the 60s, because as you know, uh, that was the point at which some of the beat writers began to engage with Buddhist practice. So it wasn't just Allen Ginsberg, it was people like Gary Snyder as as well, and William Burroughs, Alan Ginsberg wrote Howl, Gary Snyder, who was an environmentalist, wrote books on Buddhism. And it's not clear that they really understood Buddhism very well. Snyder did because he went to Japan and became a monk for a while. But the others sort of wrote some pretty wacky stuff. And it was also a complicated time because of the Vietnam War. And because one other thing was happening in the 60s, it was kind of scary to people. It was the drug movement. And during the 60s in the fallout of Timothy Leary uh, and Baba Ram, person that became Baba Ram um, Das. Ram Das was also at Naro for the first couple of years. uh, People began to start experimenting with psychoactive drugs as a means of dealing psychologically with the scary part of being alive in a culture that was at war that wasn't meeting the needs of its people very well. And the beats came along and sort of took Buddhist practice and gave that as a meditation practice as an alternative to doing drugs. So it was a very, very complicated time and communities started emerging that weren't any longer just ethnic Buddhist communities. There were communities that were largely made up of the fallout of the drug culture and the beat culture.
0: Can I ask you something there? Because you, you say uh, as an alternative to doing drugs, but it seems like a lot of the um, a lot of the beat poets, like Allen Ginsberg, and and um, you know, was talked about doing LSD and things like that. Um, was it an alternative? Uh, do, do you see? Um, do you see like those kinds of drugs as being? Uh, you know, anathema to, to Buddhist practice. Or... I think
1: initially they did, but I think invariably they stopped. I see. And I, as, as far as I know, I don't I don't know whether Gary Snyder ever really did drugs. In all my contact with him, that never emerged as a topic of discussion with, with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, he plays a role in this later on too. That's, that's pretty interesting, and it's it's still operative to, uh, today. Uh, but Communities did start to emerge and at that time, I thought that that to really do this book right, I needed to to see Buddhist communities. So I started doing field work. Whenever I could get little internal grants from Penn State, I would go and visit Buddhist communities to see who was there, what they looked like, what they did, how they related to the teacher. And by that point in the late late 60s, um, Buddhist communities had started to emerge like San Francisco Zen Center, which was run by a, a Japanese Roshi named Shinryu Suzuki or the Zen Center of Los Angeles that was run by a, a Japanese Roshi named Taizan Mizumi. And when I went to visit those communities, it was interesting because I didn't, at that point, I didn't see any Asians or Asian Americans in those communities. I didn't see any black people. I didn't see any Hispanics. All I saw was white people. And it was interesting because there was obviously this conflict at that point between Buddhists who were, for the most part, white, Caucasian, and Buddhists who were Asian or Asian-American. And their practices were different because the the people that that went to these Zen temples wanted to do meditation. And the people that were in the Chinese-American and Japanese-American communities were doing pure land Buddhism. Now, observing that and writing about it has now come back to haunt me in a very, very real way today. It's very, very unfortunate. So I continued doing this um, af- after the 1980s. Uh, one of the things that happened that, that changed everything for Buddhism in America and, and is still going on, is that in 1991, uh, a Buddhist magazine began it was called Tricycle Magazine. I, I'm sure you've seen that, right? Right. And in the second edition of Tricycle Magazine, its editor at the time, Helen Tworkov, wrote an editorial in which she said that the Buddhism that was developing in the United States was largely the product of white upper middle class Buddhists, and that even though there were perhaps a million Asian American Buddhists in the United States, they didn't contribute anything. To the Buddhism that was developing here, the inflammatory thing to say, and uh, a Buddhist priest, a Buddhist priest who was also a professor, named Rio Imamura, was I think a psychology professor um, in the United States, and if memory serves Oregon or Washington. I think it was Oregon. Uh, wrote an editor, wrote a, con- a letter to the editor, combating what Torkov said. And what Helen didn't know at the time was that Ryo Imamura grew up in Berkeley. And he grew up at a time in Berkeley when his father was a minister of the Berkeley Buddhist Church, which was a pure land church. And the the Berkeley Buddhist Church happened to be the place that all the beatniks hung out when they were in San Francisco. So Ryo Imamura grew up as Buddy Buddy. With, with Ginsburg and Snyder and Corso and the person that owned City Lights Bookstore and so forth. And he said that, that what Helen Tworkoff wrote was just utterly racist and absolutely and utterly incorrect. And she refused to publish his letter, yeah. which was terrible. Well, at that point, I didn't know about that until I got a telephone call from Rick Fields. What I didn't know at the time was that Rick Fields in the aftermath of his book coming out had found a role on the editorial board of Tricycle Magazine. So he saw the editorial, he knew that Ryo Limahura's letter had been denied. And he said, look, he said, could you write an article for Tricycle Magazine on the disconnect between Asian American Buddhists and Caucasian Buddhists? He said, after all, he said, in your book on American Buddhism, you talked about two distinct forms of Buddhism. One that was practiced properly, following Buddhist doctrine, following Buddhist practices and so forth, versus a Buddhism that that emerged in the aftermath of crazy cultural stuff, in which a lot of the practices weren't really accurate. and A lot of the things they said weren't really accurate. He said, could you change those two Buddhisms you wrote about to be two Buddhisms between Asian American Buddhism and white Buddhism. And I thought, sure, I'll, I'll do that because that way I can write something that's fair to everybody. And at that time, uh, I managed to connect up with a woman I knew at Syracuse University named Joanna Macy, uh, who was, she, she very connected in Buddhist communities. And as it turns out, she was able to put me in touch with Ryo Imamura. So we spent hours on the phone talking about what he said and how he grew up and so forth. And I wrote what I thought was a very fair article on the two Buddhisms, but reinterpreted according to the way Rick Fields had wanted me to, but declaring that each of them were good in their own right. And that Helen Torkoff was basically unfair in characterizing Asian American Buddhists the way she did because they had, they had added an immense, incredible amount of input to the developing American Buddhism. She refused to publish my article. In fact, she, she paid me what journals call a kill fee not to publish it. Hmm. So that was very, very frustrating. And it, it established a real disconnect between those two kinds of communities, which up until that time was, was pretty accurate. Uh, at that point, I thought some of this needed to be said because Asian Americans were not being treated fairly. Obviously they weren't treated fairly during the second world war when they were put in internment camps. So I took, the, I took the article, cleaned it up a little bit, put it into more academic language, and was able to publish it with a, a journal in England um, called Buddhist Studies Review, with, with whom I had a connection. So I published an article called Two Buddhisms Reconsidered, and talked about these two Buddhism, one, one being uh, Asian American Buddhism, which later be, uh, became call, called Asian Immigrant Buddhism, and the Caucasian Buddhism, which someone named Paul Nombrek decided to call American convert Buddhism, which included not just whites, but blacks, women, uh, Hispanics and whatever. So we had these two kinds of Buddhism. And what's made this all very complicated in, in trying to understand the Buddhism that has developed here is that in the mid little after the mid 1990s, a young new scholar who had done a PhD at Un- Duke University under Tom Tweed, the name was Jeff Wilson, began to notice that Buddhist communities started talking together, something they didn't do previously. So it wasn't unreasonable for Buddhist communities of different sects and, and different racial background to start to communicate and share information. And he called this new practice hybridity. And hybridity was obviously changing the whole face of what, what I call American Buddhism. And that worked for a while, but it also meant that my, my old two Buddhism theory would only have been done to, to satisfy Rick Fields was not accurate anymore. And I started, I started saying that and the things I wrote and the places that I was invited to give lectures, I said that my two Buddhism theory was only accurate from about the 1960s until the beginning of the 1990s. And now it was no longer accurate. I'll, I'll come back to that in a little, in a little bit. Sure, Um, But after a while, even despite this hybridity that was developing, there was still some conflicts between the Buddhists within these communities uh, and people didn't know how to deal with that. The biggest conflict that was occurring was by the mid 1990s, something had happened in American culture that I suppose no one had imagined, the internet. And one of the things that, that had happened prior to that is that Jeff Wilson said that one of the things he noticed is that city Buddhists or urban Buddhists communicated better with with other urban Buddhists, even if they were in a different sect than they did with Buddhists of their own sect who lived rurally. In other words, urban Buddhists and rural Buddhists didn't know how to communicate together. And he called that regionalism. So he was saying that city Buddhists talk well together, irrespective of their of their affiliation racially or sectarian wise or whatever. And rural Buddhists also talked better. In other words, someone who lived in Iowa didn't know how to talk to someone in New York and so forth. Uh, Internet changed all that because it became clear that individual Buddhists were only a mouse click away from each other. And the publishing industry absolutely blossomed like crazy. So there were a ton of books. There were more academic books out there and it became clear that a lot of people were finding their way into Buddhist practice through academic courses. Whereas in the early 1970s, my course on Buddhism in America was the only course in the whole of the United States, maybe the whole of North America, that dealt with Buddhism in in, in America. By by the mid-1990s, there were dozens of these courses. So there was lots more communication and lots more interaction. And one of the things that has emerged is that no one since has been able to figure out how to describe what's really happened as these Buddhists of all different sects, all different races, all different proclivities, all different sexual orientation, began to communicate with each, with each other. And because they didn't have anything to say that would make this all make sense, um, sometimes when you can't do that, what do you do? You attack. So over the last 10 years, wherever you go to a Buddhist conference or a Buddhist temple or a Buddhist meeting or something, everybody attacks my old two Buddhism theory, even though for 20 years I've been saying it's outdated. So there's a, an incredible mess that's developed in, in American Buddhist communities that make it hard for people to talk together. Now, there's an immense amount of literature out there. So you can, you can pick up dozens and dozens of books that talk about it. Uh, but none of it is very clear. It all seems terribly, terribly up in the air as to how this is going to develop from here on. Uh, One of the things that's happened is that there is a group that developed in the largest professional religion society in the United States. It's called the American Academy of Religion. Uh, Back in 19, it has over 10,000 members and it's mostly professors. Back in in the early 1980s, I started a unit within there called the Buddhism unit, which gave Buddhism professors a chance to come together every year at meetings and give papers. Then another group was started called the Buddhism in the West unit, small unit. And it's provided now uh, an opportunity for Buddhists who studied Buddhism in North American culture to get together every year and present papers and try to enhance on, on what's happening, different meditation practices, the, the different racial concerns and, and so forth. And that's, that's up in the air now, and, and maybe in some respect, caught in the middle of the woke movement in, in American culture generally. So there, there's a lot of confusion that's happening and it's, made, and it's made the whole discipline of American Buddhism both interesting, but both difficult. Uh, probably now, there, there may be as many as four or five million Buddhists in the United States. And there is probably every single Buddhist sectarian group from every different main tradition of Buddhism present in North America. So everything that's Buddhist is here. And there are just a ton of teachers and the teachers now um, authorize some of their own students. So some of them have a lineage of teaching and of students it, it goes on, and it's just a question of figuring out where where you f- fit in and where you don't don't fit in. And for me, that's been very interesting because, for the most part, I know most of these people. Now, maybe I should s- stop and give you a chance to ask some questions. Yeah.
0: Well, no, I, I'm curious. When we're talking about American Buddhism, um, America is a country that is uh, hyper individualistic, and some would say, um, you know, hold on uh, very tightly to that notion of ego, um, which is, um, obviously anathema to the ideals of Buddhism. Uh, do you feel like there's anything in the spirit of America that is sort of commingled um, with, uh, Buddhism as it exists here?
1: Hard, hard to say. Um, one of my old colleagues, a woman named Jan Nadir, um, in, in an article on, on something else, Buddhism said that, said that, uh, Americans are incredible non-joiners and and that's probably true. So there's still a, there's a disconnect between Americans that, that join Buddhist communities and, and those that, that don't. And I think that to, to a large extent, Buddhist communities are still seen by most Americans as rather odd because they do such an incredible variety of different sorts of, of practices uh, Not terribly long ago, a couple of few decades ago, uh, a wonderful uh, professor at Harvard named Christopher Queen began investigating something he called socially engaged Buddhism. And he explored all the ways that Buddhist communities were acting in a way of taking their Buddhist practice and ideal out into their communities to make America better. And that's become very important as as a means of of showing Buddhist practice, not just to be a withdrawal into meditation or not just to be in uh, a withdrawal into doing various kinds of chanting, but to become active in a way that reflected American values. And one of the big issues that is a a dividing factor in America now today is is racism and and sexism. Um, To a large extent, there are still many communities that uh, are prohibitive with respect to the role of women in Buddhism, despite the fact that there are some Buddhist meditation teachers, women, who have attained the status of Roshi, uh, despite the fact that they have become leaders in Buddhist communities. And there are still some Buddhist communities that have, have a difficulty dealing with sexual orientation of, of Buddhists. When someone is LGBTQ, uh, they don't quite know how to deal with that. Uh, one, of my old, one of my old graduate student colleagues from the University of Wisconsin, who unfortunately is now dead, um, is a wonderful professor named Roger Corliss, who was gay and to a large extent a lot of people discriminated against him professionally, simply because he was, he was gay. And I think there's a, a, a large movement afoot to try to move beyond those kinds of characterizations and, and make Buddhism valuable and equal to all Buddhists of all kinds. And that's in the process of playing itself out. I think if we had this conversation 20 years from now, I think things would be very, very different and more equitable and fairer. Um, and Buddhists would be able to be less concerned with their own individual attainment and more concerned with the traditional bodhisattva practices of, of working to the benefit of, of all people. Um, back in the early 1970s, Penn State was fortunate enough to have a visit from a Tibetan Buddhist nun um, named Ketchal Glamla uh, uh, Palmo. And she came and gave a couple of lectures on campus and, and we, we had a dinner in her honor and it was wonderful. But when she, when she was leaving to go to her next place, to to lecture, she held in in her hotel room a small ceremony for students of mine who wanted to take refuge and become Buddhist. So there was about a dozen students that came and and they they took refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha and they all left. And as we were leaving, she grabbed me by the arm, which I thought was odd that a a Tibetan Buddhist nun would grab me by the arm. And she said, you can't leave yet. (laughs) And I said, why? And she said, because Before you leave, you're going to take the Bodhisattva vow. She knew I was Buddhist. And the Bodhisattva vow is a very simple vow that says, may I gain complete, perfect enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. In other words, the Bodhisattva could not attain Buddhahood until all other sentient beings could do so also. And... It was pretty scary at the time because I don't know. I didn't know why she said that to me, but it's really colored my practice a great deal because it tells me that as a practicing Buddhist, you need to take that practice out into the world. And that, that's what Trumpa had said to me and, and manifest wisdom and compassion and kindness and caring for all sentient beings so that you were less concerned about your own individual attainment but more concerned about the attainment of everyone. And I think that's something that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle as people go to Buddhist meditation centers and, and try to do their own meditation. Um, sometimes it yields funny situations. One of, one of the prime disciples of Taizan Mezumi Roshi was a, a gentleman named John Daido Luri. I met John Dido Lurie in 1974 at Naropa Institute. And one of the things that connected us is that he had been a chemist. And since my my degree was in chemistry and I'd held jobs as a chemist, uh, we, we got to be friends. And years later, he he started uh, a community in, in upstate New York, uh, in Mount Tremper called Zen Mountain Monastery. And by that time, John Dido had had received Dharma transmission from Izumi Roshi, and he himself had been declared to be a Roshi. So he would invite me to come up to his community and give lectures occasionally on things that that I did in my research work, particularly Buddhist monasticism and Buddhist ethics. One of the times I was there, um, one of his students who was close to him came up to me and she said, would you like to sit with us? Because we we do our Zazen sitting every morning. in in the meditation hall would you like to sit with us and i said sure so at that point she said to me do you sit with your hands in the cosmic mudra do, do you know what the cosmic mudra is
0: uh remind me
1: the, the cosmic mudra is to put your hands like this in your lap okay you can see that
0: sure the oh oh, oh i see what you're saying yeah the words meant to uh to signify yeah. the unity She said.
1: When when you sit, do you sit with your hands in cosmic mudra? In other words, you sit with your legs crossed, obviously, but do you sit with your hands in the cosmic mudra in your lap? And I said, No, I don't. I said, I sit with my hands on my on my knees. I was trained in the formal monastic training of satipatthana, or the setting up of mindfulness. So I sit with my hands on my knees. And she she looked like she was gonna have a baby on the spot. I mean, she just totally out of whack. Whoa, oh, oh, oh! I don't know what I do. Uh, I, have to, I have to go ask Roshi if it's okay that you can sit with us. And it, it, part of me wanted to laugh because it was silly. And I said, well, go, go ask Roshi uh, what he says. And about a half an hour, she came back and she said, well, I did ask Roshi and it, it's, it, it's okay for you to sit with us. And I smiled at her and I said, what did Roshi say? Is it is it okay if I use spicy language a little bit in this? No, oh, yeah, uh, say whatever you yeah. want. Yeah, okay. She said I asked Roshi whether it was okay, and he said to me, "quote I don't give a fuck where he puts his hands. Of course, he can sit with us."
0: <laughs>
1: you know, for him, the issue was that you were sitting and and doing your breathing exercise. Yeah, um, and not where you held held your hands. So there's get these these little issues that, that pop up here and there, but they're minor. And I think we're, we're coming to a time where, where Buddhists are starting to work out the, the differences, that it's, it's starting to hopefully not matter in Buddhist communities, whether, whether you're male or female, whether you're straight or gay, whether you just do this or that. What matters really is that you practice with wisdom and compassion, that you don't lie, you don't steal. You don't do inappropriate things. You don't, don't get drunk. You don't do that sort of s- stuff. And that you and you work to the benefit of all sentient being. And I think that's got a ways to go, but it's, it's hard to bring it together because there are still some people who hold those kinds of prejudices and it makes the whole overwhelming Buddhist community look, look prob- problematic. And there's a part of me that sometimes almost wants to laugh when some people say that, my, my old two Buddhism theory was one that that privileged white Buddhist supremacy. And it's funny because it, it did exactly the opposite. It, it always said that all Buddhists of all kinds should learn to communicate together. And I sometimes wondered whether some of the people that do these accusations ever even read what I said or, or listened to any of the talks that I gave. And I think this is just going to take time to to work work itself out in the next decade or two
0: um i'm curious um because as we're wrapping up here because i I try not to go too too much over an hour um i'm i'm curious um you talk about reaching enlightenment for all beings um is is something like that uh a realistic goal is something like uh, reaching nirvana, a, a serious goal for a, a practicing Buddhist. What, what does that even mean?
1: Well, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a little different for me than for others because of the different uh, doctrinal positions of, of various Buddhist sects. For example, the Theravada tradition in, in which I took refuge at the beginning certainly argues that one can attain nirvana. Okay, they will tell you that you can't, you can't name parinirvana, which is the same attainment that the Buddha had, but that you can in fact become enlightened if you complete doing the fourth noble truth, which is the Eightfold Path. You know, those are eight eight steps that you do that ultimately lead you beyond your ego and into enlightenment. On the other hand, this highlights the difference between Theravada, which is part of what used to be called the Hinayana movement, And and Mahayana, which focuses on the enlightenment and attainment of all Buddhists throughout the universe and operates under the assumption that there can be no one individual person that would gain Buddhahood until everyone can attain Buddhahood. So there are those differences between various sects. And and depending on which sect you belong to, you would manifest that that viewpoint. Sometimes it gets a little bit scary. Um, What I didn't say in the beginning of this talk was, one of the times early on in my Buddhist practice, when I was in my first year of, of graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, I was sitting in my living room by myself, doing my meditation and something odd started to happen. I started to get a strong and profound visualization of myself sitting somewhere else. I pictured myself sitting at the shore of an ocean in the sand. And as I was sitting there, it seemed like the tide started to come in and I noticed that the water was getting closer and closer to where I was sitting. And I kept sitting and I kept sitting and eventually it seemed like the water started to carry me off the beach and out to sea, sitting on top of the water, which was odd because, you know, jokingly at that time, I thought only Charles de Gaulle was a guy who could sit on water. Uh, but I was I was being taken farther and farther away from the shore, and as I got close close to the horizon, I realized that on the next wave, I was going to be pulled over the horizon, and I would disappear over the horizon, and that, that frankly it scared the shit out of me. And I immediately I immediately stood up and stopped meditating, and I was soaking wet. I just literally soaked through my shirt, and I went into the bathroom and sat in front of the toilet because I was sure I was gonna puke. I was so scared at what had happened. And the first thing I did when I settled down was I packed up a suitcase, drove to the airport in Milwaukee, got on a flight for Washington, and went to see the Zen, the Theravada teacher who taught me meditation. And I told them what had happened. And I said, "Please." Please tell me, Bonte, what do I do now? And he said, you should go home and sit. And I said, but if if I go home and sit, I'm going to go over the horizon and I will die. And he said, I know. And I said, but I will die. And he started laughing and he said, go home and sit. And I said, but you need to help me. And at that point he said, get out. And he threw me out of his office. Hmm. So I had no choice but to go home and for two months I couldn't sit. I was just so terrified I couldn't sit. And when I finally got up the, the balls to return to sitting, literally within two minutes of starting to sit, I was back at the ocean. It was just like it all came flying back to me. And the water started to carry me out to sea. And I got to the point where I knew that the next wave was going to take me over the edge. And I remembered what he said and I just kind of swallowed really hard and held my breath and went over the edge and, and he was right I died I psychologically died there was no longer an ego saying I am Chuck and I must defend Chuck at all costs because I recognized that Chuck was nothing more than a combination of a bunch of form characteristics all stuck together and the realization of who i really was changed my buddhist practice changed everything i did changed changed my life entirely because chuck wasn't important i saw myself for who at least according to buddhist tradition i really am and that's made a wonderful difference for me in terms of of how i my my practice
0: Chuck I I think that's a wonderful story and a good note to end on Um, is there how can people who want to um, find more um, about you or or read some of your books where can they go to get more information
1: well I I did I did publish a three book series two of which are edited with other people Uh, back in the in the mid 90s, I published a book with Kenneth Tanaka, who is a professor who's now retired and he's teaching again in Japan. Um, He's a Pure Land Buddhist. He sponsored a conference at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley at the time. And we took the papers together and published a book called The Faces of Buddhism in America. It's published by the University of California Press. A couple of years later, the University of California Press published a book totally written by me called Luminous Passage which described the Buddhism that I had experienced and, and studied up until the late 1990s. And it talks about ethnicity and it talks about practice and democratization and so forth. And it, it actually does some, some small case studies of a few Buddhist communities of different sectarian varieties. And then towards the end of the decade, I became friends with a, a German scholar named Martin who at that point, I felt more about Buddhism in the world Western Buddhism in the world than than anyone on the planet, me included. And we we put together a book of edited uh, articles by other people called Westward Dharma, which is also published by the University of California Press. Um, Those three books have become a a really good trio of things for people that want to learn about Buddhism. Um, In the meantime, there are at least a couple of other books that that are really worth, worth uh, reading. Jeff Wilson, uh, who now teaches in Canada, has written a book on Buddhism in America. And Scott Mitchell, who is the Dean of the Institute of Buddhist Studies uh, in Berkeley, has written a book on, on Buddhist America, which are both exceptional books. They're just very, fi- very very fine scholars and good books. And there's a whole spectrum of, of, of others. If one wants to find out more about my journey through all this, uh, I published a a memoir about 10 years ago called An American Buddhist Life. That was not my title, that was the title the publisher used. And he called it Memoir of a Modern uh, Buddhist Pioneer. I I don't altogether (laughs) like that title, but it explains a good bit of what I talked about today, how I got into the tradition, how it developed um, and where it stands in, in the future. If one wants to read articles about Buddhism in, in America and at Western Buddhism in general, you can go to a journal site called the Journal of Global Buddhism. Um, I, I don't have the, the URL handy, but if you, if you type into Google Journal of, of Global Buddhism, this was one that Martin Bauman and I started in 2000. And I became emeritus later on, but he, he continues to run it. And he has a, a wonderful editorial team that continually publish new articles about new and exciting ideas within Buddhism. And, and that publishes every every year. They put out two major issues a year. It's available online and it's free. So no one has to spend any money to get access to this. Um, beyond that, you can, just, you can do Google, Google searches. And of course, you can look at the traditional popular buddhist magazines tricycle remains popular fortunately for me helen torkoff is not the editor anymore Um, you can read buddha dharma which is published by uh, one of trump's old disciples and they also same people publish a magazine called lion's roar both of those are quarterly publications and they usually have good articles about buddhism so there's just an overwhelming amount of of literature out there you can walk into any barnes and noble store and and look at the books on asia and just find a ton of stuff to read the trick is just making sure you find the good stuff
0: well there you go uh chuck thanks so much for your time
1: Oh, thanks this is fun absolutely
0: all righty take care you too bye-bye bye-bye thank you to charles prebish and thanks for listening to dunk tank i'm duncan gammy see you next time